0: From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids, to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR.
1: I'm Clemence Michelon, and I'm the author of The Quiet Tenant.
0: French journalist and author Clemence Michelin's debut novel in English is titled The Quiet Tenant. It tells the story of a serial killer from three perspectives, a woman he's dating, his 13-year-old daughter, and one of the victims he let live, a hidden captive kept in a shed at the serial killer's house. When the killer has to move, he brings his captive to live with him and his daughter, assuming that she's too brainwashed to consider escape. I recently spoke with Clemence Michelin about her interest in serial killers, the complexities of her narrative point of view and structure, and how her journalism experience helped her with her writing process. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. Okay, so can you give our listeners a description of The Quiet Tenant? I guess I'm asking how much we're spoiling today. (laughs) Yes, um, it's always an interesting question,
1: how far (laughs) to go when introducing the book. First of all, thank you for doing this, and thank you so much for your interest in the novel. I'm very happy to be speaking with you. Uh, The Quiet Tenant is a novel I like to describe as the story of a man who has a secret and a problem. And his secret is that he's not the seemingly perfect man that his community in upstate New York believes him to be. He is, in fact, a serial killer who has murdered multiple women and who is holding the one victim he couldn't kill captive in his garden shed. And his problem is that he has to move from a relatively large property where the shed is located to a smaller house, which doesn't have a garden shed. And the way he decides to solve this problem is by bringing his captive to live with him inside the house, along with his teenage daughter, who obviously doesn't know about his crimes, doesn't know about his secret life. And so he tells his daughter that this new woman is a tenant who is renting a spare room from them. And he believes his captive is too brainwashed to escape. But obviously, we do get to see her in the house, uh, having much more of an access to her captor's life and uh, to his daughter as well. And I also like to say that the story is told from three main perspectives, all female perspectives. Um, The three main ones being the perspective of the captive victim, uh, the perspective of the teenage daughter, and the perspective of another woman who does not know about this man's crimes either and has a bit of a crush on him and is going to try to get closer to him without necessarily realizing what she's about to step into.
0: Okay, so I took a college course on serial killers, and it barely scratched the surface of information. So talk to me about when you first became interested in serial killers as a potential topic and the type of research you had to do for this book.
1: Yes, so I became interested in serial killers from a pretty young age, I think, and I have my mother to thank for this. Uh, I think I was around 12 when she first told me about a man called Ted Bundy, uh, who murdered many women and girls. And I think we obsess over what we can't understand, right? Which I think in a way is, is hopeful. Uh, the reason why we care so much about these dark crimes is maybe that we can't wrap our heads around them. And so I would go through cycles of sort of tucking this information at the back of my head, almost forgetting that serial killers exist, and then remembering and going along Wikipedia binges, reading about Bunsey and others. And then rinse and repeat, right? I would like set it aside and then come back and do more research. So in a way, I was researching this book for years before I even knew I would write it.
0: Well, and what's fascinating about the novel is that you were able to morph, you know, a serial killer novel with a hidden captive novel. Maybe I should ask you even about your research of hidden captives
1: yes so you know it was so interesting i it felt daunting to me actually the perspective of writing a captivity novel but the way i ended up merging these two concepts is because i wanted to write a story about someone who has a dark secret that because of a change in their circumstances they're no longer able to hide from their family and the reason this was my ideas because I started working on this novel in April of 2020. And I spent this strange time in a house upstate in New York state uh, with my husband and his parents. And it was fascinating because we all knew what everyone in our group did for a living. But suddenly we got to observe one another's days on a much more granular level. And I thought to myself, Well, what if someone had a dark secret that they had been able to keep because of that distance that is baked into our routines with our commutes and the fact that we go to our offices? And what if suddenly that distance was gone? And so the way I ended up landing on the captive stories, I thought, well, being a serial killer is a pretty big secret to keep from your family. It's as big as it gets, really. But how do you materialize this in a way that, you know, needs to be addressed in the moment and in every moment of someone's life? And this idea of the surviving captive victim came up. But then in order to write that, as you mentioned, I had to do some research. And that included reading again about some cases that I had followed for years. Right. The, the J.C. Lee DeGuard case. She was held captive for years and years uh, after being abducted as a girl. Uh, Natasha Kampush in Europe. And the Cleveland case with three women who were held captive also for years and years and then finally escaped. And it was a case of sort of reading about their stories, but then going off on my own and doing my job as a novelist and really taking ownership of my characters and giving
0: them their own story. Now, you mentioned perspective and that we get the perspective of three different characters. But I also I guess I want to ask about point of view, because. One of the characters, the woman being held captive, the captor, he wants her to go by the name Rachel. So I'm, I'm, whenever I say Rachel, assume it's in air quotes. So we heard from Rachel. And when we heard from Emily, the the young woman, and Cecilia, the daughter, we heard from them in the first person. But, you know, with quote unquote Rachel's, it was second person. So talk to me about how you determined point of view. Yeah, I
1: love working on point of view. And I usually need to start writing in the wrong point of view and then change it uh, (laughs) to really find a character's voice. Uh, To me, that is part of the process, starting in the wrong place and then having fun changing it. So the way I ended up using the second person is actually started with me using the first person. Originally, Rachel's quote unquote, Rachel's point of view was written in the first person. But... The voice wasn't really singing for me in the first person, I think because the things that happened to her are so, so outsized, right? It's so much. It's so cruel what's happened to her. She goes through so much. There's so much trauma. And we experience a lot of it with her as the novel goes on. And it just seemed strange. It just seemed like... It just seems like someone who was in that moment wouldn't be having that interior monologue of I am experiencing this, I am doing that, because they would be severed from that part of their consciousness. And I happened to be reading the book Three Women by Lisa Tadeo, in which she uses the second person in some parts. And I thought those passages were mesmerizing when she switched to the second person. For some reason, they really spoke to me. and uh, so I decided to try it for quote unquote Rachel and her voice really came to life when I started doing that. And at first I didn't know why, but then I read an article online in which the novelist Brendan Taylor said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he said that the second person in fiction can be a way to sort of show
0: the fragmentation
1: of a traumatized mind. And I thought, oh yes, yes, that that's what was happening with a second person.
0: Well, and I thought it was interesting as well in, you know, the whole second person perspective. She's a bit removed because her name isn't Rachel. And also, Mm -hmm. I guess this leads into my next question, because I found the chapter titles interesting, because they're labeled by the by the three main points of view and, and, you know, a few others. But when, quote unquote, Rachel, when we're on her chapters, they're not even labeled Rachel. They're like the woman in the shed or the woman before the shed. Talk to me about the thinking behind those chapter titles and and how Rachel doesn't even get a name there, even though it's not her name. (laughs)
1: Well, and that's the thing, right? I think you've hit on exactly the the point here was I didn't want to head her chapter, Rachel, because that's not her name, right? It's the name her, her captor has given her. But at the same time, I didn't want to label it with her real name because I think she's become so removed from that identity. She's had to shed it in a way in order to survive when the novel starts she she's been held captive for five years at that point and so i think she really has built a new identity that is solely geared towards survival but i think she is stuck in a place where she is no longer her former self right she's no longer the person she was before she was abducted but she has one last holdout. i i don't think she has fully started thinking of herself as the person her captor wants her to be and I think she is in a place where it doesn't even matter in a way what she calls herself or what it's she's just in the moment trying to survive minute by minute by minute so then she became the woman in the shed and then the woman in the house after she moves and that was also a way of modeling those changes in circumstances And I think that's how she thinks of herself. Like for her, this move is a very big deal. There's the shed and then there's the house and it's a massive change in her circumstances. And in a way she has to build another identity after she moves to the house because suddenly her environment is so different and it's still
0: very restricted, but it's much richer. I often read into things that are really not there. So, you know, it, it felt a little like 1001 Arabian Nights to me, just as, you know, Scheherazade was able to postpone her execution through storytelling. Quote unquote, Rachel was able to postpone hers by talking. Or did I just make up that connection?
1: No, I, I don't think you, you did at all. I think there's something there of, you know, both characters take charge of their own survival. And there's that sort of cunning aspect to Rachel where she realizes that the man who's holding her captive has to move, he's going to have decisions to make and we see her you know, we see those wheels getting set in motion and and we see her trying to manipulate him in a way to survive and those scenes were really interesting to write. Uh, Those dialogues you know, putting these two characters in a scene together I felt almost like a movie director, sometimes putting two actors together and, and watching them bounce off each other. It was really fascinating because it can be very simple dialogue, but it's so loaded with meaning.
0: I wanted to touch on that a little bit more because Rachel would establish her own private rules for staying alive. And on on one hand, she had this intense need for survival, but then on the other, she was on the losing end of a power dynamic so talk to me about that balance that she had to maintain because I mean even though he felt like she was probably had been captive long enough to be brainwashed talk to me about the balance that she had to maintain between survival and and being on the losing end of this power dynamic
1: Yeah it was such an interesting uh dynamic to have to figure out because she is so focused on survival but at the same time she is entirely at least in the beginning of the book at the mercy of her captor's behavior it's this weird situation where she does need him in order to stay alive because he brings her food and he brings her water and all those things and at the same time i think she has to maybe hide from him the depths of her own intelligence and or whatever sort of little shreds of not exactly hope, but drive to live, she still has left, she can't let him see them too much. And so that was
0: an interesting part to figure out. You know, I found myself underlining things throughout the book that I, I don't necessarily have a question about, but I guess I would acknowledge what seems like an astute insight into the human psyche. I mean, one was like when Mrs. Cooper was always a little bit too enthusiastic and always worried that she and her family wouldn't fit in. You know, I guess this is more a question about you. I mean, do you do you study people? Yes. I, I, I love to sort of
1: observe and try to understand social dynamics. And, you know, I'll, I'll be listening to a conversation. I'll be like, that was a like that was about that person, wasn't it? Or I, I love to sort of debrief afterwards. I, I, I think I also I'm someone who's very afraid of hurting other people's feelings, or uh, being unintentionally rude, or being misunderstood it's a dysfunctional thing, but I'm always very sort of trying to read other people's behaviors and preempt their reactions, which is sometimes makes my own life harder (laughs) and certainly more tiring, but it was very useful for this book because when you're sort of hyper aware, of what you think are other people's thoughts and feelings. Well, you do end up absorbing a good amount of things. And uh, maybe sometimes my reading is completely wrong, you know, but at least there's a story that forms in my mind about a particular situation. And so it does end up, you know, it surfaces later on in the books, right? What was someone like Mrs. Cooper be thinking uh, after moving to a small upstate town with her family, you know, she'd be worried about fitting in, she'd be worried that maybe she's, you know, she's an outsider. And that seems to make sense to me.
0: So I saw on the audio book, that it is narrated by several, several narrators, one for each character. And I didn't have access to the audiobook until this morning so I actually read the book but I did go back to the audiobook and I listened to all of the different character voices because there were just there was such a cast of characters listed and I saw your name among them and you voiced number seven right because we did you Mm -hmm. did include chapters the perspectives of the women who were killed you voiced number seven how was that experience Yes, I did
1: get to record a chapter of the audiobook. And it was amazing. First of all, the entire production of the audiobook was such a fun project. Dan is the producer, and we really worked together. He really included me. uh, And I really appreciated to have a chance to get involved. And because we needed so many voices, right, because there are the three main characters, and then multiple other voices who also get a little point of view it was like well we need such a white cast dan said well do you want to read what do you want to read one of those you know shorter chapters and i said yes immediately i was like absolutely i'll do it you know i don't know how i've never done this before but if you're open to it i'm in and then 24 hours later i emailed him and i was like dan you, you do know that I'm not a native English speaker, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm from France. And then I had to like sort of qualify. I was like, I don't think I have like what people think of as a stereotypical French accent, but it may surface. Sometimes I, you know, there's something I might pronounce a little differently. And then I said, you know what, here's a podcast I did just listen to me, <laughs> you know, and he, he blessed it. He said that <laughs> that's okay. And so, yeah, I got to you know, to read this chapter. And I chose a short one, because I didn't want to, you know, give myself more than
0: I could chew. And it was so fun. I adored it. You just mentioned that you are not a native English speaker, you grew up in France. So talk to me about writing this book in English, which is not your first language.
1: Yeah, it was certainly a challenge. I wanted to see if I could do it so this is my debut thriller and my debut novel in English and before that in September of 2020 I published a a, a literary novel in French with a small independent feminist press in France so because my idea was well writing a novel is really hard. (laughs) I don't know if people, (laughs) I don't know if that's talked about at all, but writing a novel, not easy as it turns out. And so I figured, you know, maybe if I could try writing one in my native language first, that might be easier. And so I did that. And then I, you know, I figured, well, let's, let's try that in English. And I had this serial killer story I really wanted to tell. And to me, obviously it had to be a thriller because of the story and, you know, some of my favorite thrillers are written in English. To me, English really is the language of thrillers. And so, you know, it really, it felt like a good opportunity. And what was interesting, I think on the page, the work of that I had to do to find the voice of each character in English, in the end, I don't think it was that different from the work that a native speaker would have had to do. I think, I think we all go through a phase where we have to play with the voice a little bit and get familiar with it and figure it out and in the end i mean it felt weird for about the first few minutes or hours i spent on this and then i kind of forgot that this was happening in english of course there were times where i had to check that a word actually means what i think <laughs> it means and like and sometimes it didn't like saunter to me Sounds like it means the absolute opposite of what it means. Like to me, it means like jumping a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) It means skipping in my mind. But yeah, other than that. And then, you know, in copy edits, I think we all have, you know, little grammar mistakes that need to be corrected. And in the end, I don't actually think this was the biggest part for my poor copy editor. Um, The chronology was the hardest part, the timeline, because I have a very fluid uh, appreciation of time. And my (laughs) my copy editor was like, wait, (laughs) like you just said it was
0: winter. Now it's like, what is happening? Um, So we had to sort of nail that down. In your acknowledgements, you thanked your editor, Reagan Arthur, saying that she edited and published some of your favorite books, books that made you a writer. What are some of those books?
1: Yes, so that was a reference to Megan Abbott's uh, novels. Uh, Reagan was Megan's editor for a long time, and so I actually had two editors on The Quiet Tenant. I had my acquiring editor Tim O'Connell, and then he left because he got a different job, and so Reagan. Stepped up as my editor. I was a very lucky writer. I had two wonderful editors. And when I got to work with Reagan, the first thing I said to her was exactly this, right? Like that she had edited and published some books that had shaped me profoundly as a writer. And as Reagan soon found out, I met Megan Abbott's book because I still remember the first book I read of Megan's was The Fever. And it was Such an intense experience for me as a reader. I I didn't know it was possible to write like this. But at the same time, I felt like I had been waiting to hear this voice all my life. My mind was entirely blown. Just the way she writes about being a girl, being a woman. And she puts words on things that feel so true to me, but that I wouldn't know how to even verbalize. This is, I think, a magical feeling when a writer does this. It makes you feel so much less alone. And just from her artistry, just her craft just was absolutely mind-blowing for me. And I didn't really know what to do with that epiphany at first. I was just, I just read all of her books. And I also love the way she talked about craft. With The Fever, there's an essay or a and a at the end of the edition I had where Megan talked about how she was inspired by among other things, by something that had happened in a high school and how that propelled her writing of The Fever, which is about some teenage girls who are seized by sort of strange, unexplainable symptoms. And the way Megan handled that connection between reality and fiction and how she used it, but also sublimated it, the way she read into our reality and was, was able to see things in it and to channel them into her writing, I found that fascinating.
0: You know, you mentioned that The Quiet Tenet is your debut novel in English, but you you are a writer, you are a journalist. Has your experience in journalism prepared you in any way for writing a novel?
1: Yes, and I think in multiple ways. First of all, there's the that blessing that as a journalist, if it's time to write, I write. You know, there's no, you learn to switch it on and off. I have worked on news desks i've worked on breaking news i've covered presidential elections uh you know i've covered things live if something you know is ready to go live it's showtime you know you have to write it now and it is so helpful to have learned to just sort of switch it on and off and to be able to sit down and just write because it's time to write and also to power through those terrible. First draft that we do, right? It's uh, <laughs> very, very important. And also, journalism was my first experience of being edited, of inviting someone else to see my work and point out its flaws and help me get it into a better shape. And so that can be a weird process at first, but I was very lucky that I started doing this, you know, as an intern when I was 18 years old. I had the most wonderful boss and he would print out my drafts and sit down with me and red pen them with me and it was a very very enriching experience and then there's the other side of it in which as the journalist i have covered true crime so i have spoken to people who have either experienced infamous crimes or who are loved ones families friends of people who have and it's helped me build a library of knowledge about those things. You know, it's helped me understand how those things happen, how the world moves, how regular people end up in these infamous stories and how their ordinary lives, you know, clash with the sort of history of crime. And it's, probably helped me flex my empathy muscles a lot too. You know, you have to, when you're talking to somebody, you you have to sort of open yourself in that way. And then it, ultimately there's a bit of a challenge here for me, uh, which is that when I sit down to write fiction, I try to only consult my journalism brain as needed, but only as little as needed. You know, I don't want someone to be talking to me in an interview and then have to worry that something's going to show up in a book. You know, that's not the goal here. It's more gaining an understanding of how things work. And then hopefully going off and doing my job as a novelist when it's time to make things up, which I absolutely cannot do uh, (laughs) my day job. I hear that's frowned upon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Oh, that's such a good question. Well,
1: I think some things that I've talked about in other interviews that maybe might be interesting was that with this book, I had to decide how I would portray uh, violence, you know, or not portray it on the page. So a thing I've said is, um, for me, deciding how to toe that line was a big part of writing this book. And I quickly decided that there were things that I wouldn't show, you know, usually the golden rule is show don't tell. And I think this became to a degree tell don't show, but I think that the book was better for it. And to me, where violence happens in the book, I wanted to show maybe not what happens to bodies, but what happens to the mind of the person who is being victimized, because that is what matters in the end is the pain and the trauma so it was a bit of a challenge because you do have to bring the reader there with you because it means something. But at the same time, I didn't want it to feel voyeuristic or exploitative. But, but what I found was, while I thought it, it was a big challenge, it was something I paid a lot of attention to, in the end on the page, for me, it came together pretty naturally. There was obviously, I re- I refined it as time went on, including with my editors. But I don't think there is a draft somewhere that is drastically different. I think my own comfort zone became clear to me pretty quickly.
0: Well, the book is The Quiet Tenant. Clemence Michelin. thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for the great questions. That was Clemence Michelin, author of the book, The Quiet Tenant, which was published by Canoff. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevenson, and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.